uh, as we begin this morning, do you have any questions for me? Oh boy. Okay, so goodbye. <laughs> okay, Janice, what do you have? <laughs> Blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Okay, so we had very sinister groups talking about this. Yes. Yeah, and I, I do have something to say. I mean, basically, I'm going to define it and assure all of you sitting here that you've never done it. Okay? <laughs> or at least are not currently doing it. Uh, so yeah, but it won't. I won't. There's not going to be a long treatise on on that. That's not the point of the story. Any other questions? That's it, really? That was it? I had nothing to be afraid of then. <laughs> oh, the sandwich, yeah. Yeah, I'm thinking about driving up to Jimmy John's and saying, hey, could I have a Markin? Give me that Markin, because that's what the theologians call it, a Markin sandwich. <laughs> yeah, because it's a sandwich in Mark. So, yeah, yeah, so, uh, yeah, and he does that a lot. Is this the first time we've talked about that? Other than just, yeah, okay. Yeah, it's another sandwich, so we'll talk about that as well at the end. <laughs> Okay, let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for today. Thank you so much for these women. Thank you so much for your word. Father, um, I am tremendously grateful that you have not left us um, without instruction, without your word, and um, what a clear guide map we have, Father, to follow. Uh, and may we follow that faithfully uh, today and in the days and months and years ahead in our, of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, just to look back uh, briefly, in Mark 1, there's a whole lot of healing going on. I can't tell you the whole story, but uh, one of my favorite stories about my daughter Katie is at a time, now this is going to sound like that's a favorite story, when we thought, she's three or four years old, and we thought she had eaten a bunch of uh, uh, children's vitamins. And, you know, her, her older cousin was like dealing them out. And uh, so when we, and her pea turned green, and it's funny because it was because she'd eaten green corn chips, and I didn't realize that until we were in the emergency room. But, um, but when we asked Katie, how many did you eat? She said, a lot of them. <laughs> so that's kind of a family saying for us. So how many healings were there? There a lot of them. All kinds of healing going on. And the first chapter ends with the healing of the leper. Uh, Jesus not only healed him, though, he touched him, which would have been scandalous to do. And then he gives the man a strict warning not to tell anyone. Yeah, right. He couldn't keep it in. He just had to spread the news. But that had consequences for Jesus. And we read this at the end of Mark. Instead, Jesus, because he was so crowded in after this, um, after this healing, so many people coming uh, to him. Instead, Jesus went out and began, or this is the leper, excuse me. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. So he retreats from Capernaum, where he had been, uh, on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, into lonely places, and he is there for some sort of unspecified time. And then in chapter 2, after those number of days, he will come back to Capernaum. And we begin then with this healing of the paralytic in the first 12 verses 
of chapter 2. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get, in, get, to him, get, to him, get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, meaning the faith of the friends, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of all of them. Don't you wish you would have been there? And one theologian said, and, and they raised the roof again, this time in praise <laughs> to God. Uh, this amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. So this house was probably Peter's house again, and archaeology tells us fascinating things about Capernaum and, and, and the homes where they lived. And it was made of black basalt, which was plentiful, um, and on, even on the shores of Galilee in that area. And the roofs were made out of wooden cross beams with a matting that was rolled out over it and had to be rolled back up and replaced uh, at least once a year. And that matting was covered with reeds and branches and dried mud, hence the digging through the roof. And then there would have been stairs on the outside up to the roof uh, to reach it. So they weren't like scaling the wall with this guy in tow. Uh, and roofs were actually used in the hot months. They were used much like we use our decks uh, to, to get out of the you know, stuffy house and, and sit outside. This house was packed even outside the house with people. One theologian called it an impenetrable thicket of people. Interestingly, um, crowds play mostly a negative role in Mark because they obstruct access to Jesus and his ministry. So these friends were determined. They were determined uh, to get their friend to Jesus. They weren't deterred by the crowds. And the lengths to which they were willing to go for their friend is a measure of their faith. Jesus recognized immediately that this man was asking for healing, and he recognized the faith of their friends. One theologian said only a tenacious faith would go to so much trouble. The friends act. They act, which is the essence of faith. Much more than just knowing or feeling something, faith is active. It is an action. As Dr. Edwards says, faith is first and foremost not knowledge about Jesus, but active trust that Jesus is sufficient for our deepest and most heartfelt needs. He goes on to say that this, this particular picture is, is a description of faith. Faith will remove 
any obstacle, even a roof, if necessary, to get to Jesus. Oddly, we aren't told how the man felt about this, <laughs> but he didn't uh, resist, it seems, uh, because being lowered through a roof on a mat is not without its own risks. Uh, the healing itself, when did this take place? And I was already asked that question beforehand. I believe that the healing took place when Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. That's what he meant. You're healed. Now, the man didn't move. I, he might have been like, what? I didn't come here to be forgiven. I came here to be healed. So maybe he didn't know he'd been healed. But, but at that point, the man was healed. But he doesn't make an attempt to move, apparently. And the scene immediately shifts to the scribes, to the teachers of the law who are standing there. And they're thinking, who but God can forgive sin? Who indeed? Jesus asserts both his power and his authority in this story. He asserts his power by telling the man to get up and walk. And the man does. And thereby, Jesus asserts his authority to forgive sins. Because you see, to presume to forgive sins is something that no rabbi, not even the high priest, would ever uh, dare to do. It would have been seen as an arrogant affront to the majesty of God. It would have been blasphemy unless the person presuming to forgive the sin is God incarnate. And he is. By the way, God is also the only one who knows men's hearts, as he does here. And I'm pretty sure the scribes were freaking out that this guy knew what they were thinking. How does he know what we're thinking? Um, and in this, Jesus is fulfilling scripture from Deuteronomy, which told, um, told the people how they could know a true prophet from a false prophet. You may say to yourselves, how can we know when a message has been spoken by the Lord? If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously. Do, so do not be alarmed. Jesus told them he had the authority to forgive sins, and he healed the man, proving he had that authority. So Jesus is essentially saying, I told you I had this authority. And I am proving it to you that by doing what I said I could do. Now, it's interesting that Jesus started with, your sins are forgiven. Um, and, it, and it would seem that, that the paralysis of this man was somehow connected to his sins. Now, I just, just talked briefly with these ladies over here where they said, oh yeah, people say all the time, well, this thing happened to you, you know, it's because of the sin in, in your life. That's not what's going on here, okay? I lie and then I get in a car wreck. Oh, well, it's not karma. That's not what we're talking about. It. This, is, this is particular sin in this man, man's life that caused him to have paralysis. We don't know exactly how or what it was, but Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, plural. So he's not saying that sin generally the fall, the, it's a product of the fall that you are paralyzed. He's connecting this man's sins to his paralysis, to his condition. This is not so foreign to us. We see people who have, have been addicted to alcohol all their lives and they end up with cirrhosis, sometimes get angry at God. There's a connection there. Or, or sexual promiscuity leading to all kinds of illnesses and issues in life. 
there is a connection between the two. And here we see Jesus, as he does many times in John, referring to himself as the Son of Man. And it was Jesus' primary term for himself. Why? Um, well, the term Son of Man did not carry the political and religious baggage that other titles did, like Messiah, like Son of God, which he's also called in Mark. However, the term Son of Man is not without prophetic significance. It's just not mentioned as frequently. But see who this reminds you of in Daniel 7. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence, so God's presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That's the son of man. That's Jesus in Daniel. And then in verses 13 through 17, we see this scandal of the grace of our God that he would call a tax collector. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, the first thing I, I want to talk about is, was Levi a disciple? Because here's the thing. When the, when the disciples are listed in chapter 3, he's not on the list. Now, it's possible, since we don't have a calling of Matthew, that he's got two names like Peter, Simon Peter did, and he's the Matthew that's listed there. That's possible. It's also possible that he wasn't one of the 12. Take a second to ponder that. He was called in the exact same manner as, as Peter, James, and John. That means that the call to follow is not limited to the 12. How great is that? It's not limited at all. Any who are willing to follow Jesus may do so. No prerequisite or clean record required. Isn't that comforting? It is to me. So the call is to follow, and it's to follow Jesus. And following is an act, and it's an act that involves risk and cost. Following is, as Dr. Edwards says, following is something one does, not simply what one thinks or believes. And Levi is called to follow Jesus. And he drops everything and does. Got fired, by the way, because if you left your booth in the middle of a shift, you got fired. So he, there was risk involved. And then we go to this scene at Levi's house. And, and, and Jesus was dining with, and I'm quoting a, a commentary here, Jesus dined with a ragtag assemblage of social pariahs. 
all of whom would have been considered ritually unclean by the Jews. In fact, it may have been more of a scandal for Jesus to eat with a tax collector than touch a leper. In fact, it probably was. And dining with other people was a big deal in ancient Judaism, still is. And, and the Jews were very particular about their dining partners. Not so with Jesus. Jesus came to call sinners. That's me. And that's you too. He calls us just as we are. He doesn't expect us to fix ourselves up first. Because you know why? We can't fix ourselves up. Here's what Dr. Edwards says about this. He says, the scandal of this story is that Jesus does not make moral repentance a precondition of his love and acceptance. Rather, Jesus loves and accepts tax collectors and sinners as they are. If they forsake their evil and amend their lives, they do so not in order to gain Jesus' favor, but because Jesus has loved them as sinners. Jesus' association with such people is not coincidental. He does not happen to be with them or wait for invitations. He initiates the fellowship. And he does so with sinners such as us as well. Now, aren't you glad he does? Well, then there's a question of fasting. Because you see, John's disciples fasted and Jesus didn't. And so the Pharisees were like, what's up with this? Now, I'm not going to read... Um, all of, of what we're talking about today because I have something at the end that I really want to have time to do. So uh, I'm not going to read this, but the question comes up and Jesus is asked, why don't your disciples fast like John's do? And Jesus compares his coming himself to a wedding feast, a joyous wedding feast. And basically what Jesus says is, who fasts at a wedding feast? Well, actually, Jeff and I did because we sort of ran out of food. Do you remember? I hope my mom would be like, I hope they don't remember that. So I had a Perrier. That's what I had at my wedding feast. But in general, there, it's not this dour thing. It's a, it's a party. It's joyful and people feast. And that was Jesus' answer. And then he gives two analogies about his mission. And the first is about patching clothes. And he says, if you put an unshrunk patch... I know nothing about this, but Jesus did, because I don't sew. But if you put an unshrunk patch on a piece of shrunken, all pre-shrunk clothing, when you wash it, it will shrink and it will tear away from the cloth. And then he gives this analogy of wine and wineskins. And if you put, I know less about wine actually, if you put new wine into old wineskins which have already reached their capacity, as the wine ferments and expands, the wineskin will burst open. The point with both of these analogies that Jesus is making is that Jesus is bringing something new that isn't compatible with the old. It doesn't fit. He is inaugurating a new system, a new kingdom, God's kingdom. The old system, the old way of doing things, must give way to the new. Garland says he's not simply a reformer of the old, but one who will transform it. And in this passage, there is a hidden 
Christology, an understanding of who God is. Because in the Old Testament, frequently, God is referred to as the husband, the bridegroom of Israel. And Israel is is his unfaithful bride. It's what the whole book of Hosea is about. Jesus here intentionally says, I'm the bridegroom makes himself the bridegroom, and it is another hint of Jesus' identity as God incarnate. When I was in college, we were taught that nowhere in the Gospels does Jesus claim to be Messiah. Yeah, right. Everywhere in the Gospels, Jesus claims to be Messiah. We don't understand it because we don't understand when he says, I'm the bridegroom, he's connecting that to God. Or when he says, so that you know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, he's connecting himself as the Messiah. Everywhere he claims to be Messiah. And he's not done. It's going to come up again and again in Mark. So then we move on uh, to, to, from chapter 2, verse 23, to chapter 3, verse 6, with a couple of Sabbath controversies. And again, you know what? Uh, let's see. I meant to do that. Um, and it, I'm not, again, I'm not going to read these. Uh, hopefully, you've already read them. But the first is about picking grain on the Sabbath, and the second is about a healing that Jesus did uh, on the Sabbath. And so As they walked through these fields on the Sabbath, Jesus and his disciples, and actually it doesn't tell us Jesus did, but that his disciples were picking grain and eating it. Now, first let's talk about Sabbath law. Um, Because there was an evolution of Sabbath law. If you read the original law about the Sabbath, it is not very specific. It says to rest. I'm not going to say we're supposed to. It tells the Jews to rest on the Sabbath, which for them was Saturday. So there are very few specific regulations in the Old Testament. But over time, as legal tractates, as, as Mishnah, as it's called, as, as the oral law went on, they, they added more and more interpretations and categories of what this law was. And it became very specific. You couldn't carry a child or walk more than 800 meters or help an animal give birth, or tie or loosen a knot, or sew more than one stitch, or write more than one letter. Not like a letter to a person, like the letter A. And this carries on today. You know all the stuff that we can just do our hand over and something moves? That was, was created in Israel. <laughs> and we went, uh, one time when we went on a cruise with my mother, on the Saturday there was, a, there was an elevator that was designated as the Sabbath elevator, and it had, a, it had an elevator man in it so that he could push the button for the people riding so that they didn't have to work on the Sabbath. And Jesus is saying that is never what the Sabbath was intended to be. That was never the purpose of the Sabbath rest, and that is his point. Now, to pick grain on the Sabbath is clearly unlawful, at least according to these Pharisees. But Jesus gives a two-part response, and the first is that he has the authority to pick grain, and his disciples, by extension, have, it's not unlawful because Jesus has the authority. 
And he cites David as a precedent who ate bread in the temple that was not, it was clearly, un, the tabernacle, that was clearly unlawful for him to eat because he was king and his men were starving and he had the authority to do so. And what Jesus is saying, based on Psalm 110, where David said, the Lord said to my Lord, so God said to Jesus, sit at my right hand and I will make your enemies a footstool. And what Jesus is saying to him what to these men is, if David had the authority to do that, the Son of Man has the authority to pick grain on the Sabbath. And then he goes on and he says, the Sabbath was made for man, not vice versa, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, God mandated the Sabbath rest for the benefit of mankind, to be a joyful celebration it was not mandated so that it could be turned into a drudgery of keeping the law, which legalism always becomes. There is no rest or joy in it. I can't press this button. I might be sinning. There's no rest or joy in it. You're constantly wondering, am I breaking the law? Am I breaking the law? There's no rest. Jesus um, declares himself at the end of this to be the Lord of the Sabbath. Again, he is establishing his authority and presuming for himself that something that only belongs to God, which would be blasphemy unless he is God. And then he heals on the Sabbath. Um, oops. Yeah, we'll go back to that. He heals on the Sabbath a man with a shriveled hand. And um, uh, something that the, that the religious leaders see as a sin because it is work on the, uh, on the Sabbath. And Jesus is angry at them uh, because of their answer to this question. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save a life or, a, or to kill? But they remained silent. They remained silent silent. What is the obvious answer to his question? Which is better? To do good, obviously. But in the face of suffering, in the midst of suffering, they refuse to answer. Their hearts remain unmoved by the suffering of, his, of this man. Ladies, that's ungodly. And it made Jesus angry. They are so bent on getting Jesus, so bent and so focused on every jot and tittle of the law that they won't even admit that healing someone is good any day of the week. And indeed, there's irony in this because the leaders go out and plot Jesus' death on the Sabbath. So it's okay to plan a murder on the Sabbath, but it's not okay to heal someone, and these men believed they were doing the work of God. Then in verses 7 through 12, uh, we have kind of a tour, Jesus' tour of Galilee, where he's, people are coming to him from everywhere as he travels around, even from outside Jewish areas, if you look at the map, and he heals people, and he casts out demons, and he teaches them. We don't know what he taught. Mark doesn't care to tell us what he taught very often, just that he taught. And then in verses 13 through 19, 
whoa, how'd that turn black? That's interesting. Um, he creates the 12. Very, very interesting. First, he calls to himself um, 12 people on a mountain, and that's significant. Now, it, if you go there, and I haven't, but you know I want to, you wouldn't go like, that's like the Tetons. But Mark calls it a mountain, and he calls it a mountain for a reason, because mountains are places of revelation from God, and this creating of the 12 is a, relation, is a revelation. Now, the NIV says that Jesus appointed poieo, but more accurately, that is translated, he created. It's the same word that is used in Genesis 1, of in the beginning, God poieo, created the heavens and the earth. Creating is again, uh, creating is making something out of nothing, and it is again something only God can do. Jesus did not choose the 12 from an, ex an existing group. He brought into existence these disciples. And there is significance in that number 12 because there were 12 tribes of Israel. So it's recalling the 12 tribes of Israel. And the revelation that, is, that Jesus is giving us is that he is creating a new Israel, God's people who follow him. And he gives them a mission. He gives them a twofold mission. That they are to be with Jesus is the first one. Now, they will become witnesses of his ministry in the years ahead. But there is a difference between hanging around Jesus and being with him. There were a lot that followed him. There were a lot that hung around. They weren't all disciples. They weren't all with him. Being with Jesus means following where he leads in service to him and others. And then the second part of their missions, mission is that they were to be sent. They were to be sent to do the work to which they were called, to preach and to drive out demons. Ladies, we are called as Christ's disciples to nothing less than that. We are called to be with Jesus, to follow him wherever he leads. And we are called to know Jesus and to make him known to others and to minister to others in his name and for his glory. Well, now I am going to read this last part. Um, and it's, it's kind of long. Got to see where I'm starting here. Um, but it's our sandwich. So we're going to eat our whole sandwich here. We're going to read the, the whole thing. Because this is, this is um, the Mark and Sandwich technique, but also because this is really, um, really important to understand this. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind? And the teachers of the law who came from, the, from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebul, that meaning Satan. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and he began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, 
he cannot stand. His end has come. Yeah, yeah, it has. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. I tell you, truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and their every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, standing outside. They sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in the circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. I just want to point out that in the original, it does say sister. Jesus was not a misogynist. Uh, and we will see that over and over again as well. So here's this technique of, he's, it's talking about the family, and then it abruptly cuts to the Pharisees, and then it goes back to the family. Um, and, and what are we to understand from this? It's an interrupted story by another story. We learn that not everyone was awestruck by what Jesus was doing. And his family was pretty concerned about what Jesus was doing. In fact, it says they wanted to take charge. That literally means they wanted to forcibly seize him. They wanted to basically, you know, have him committed, uh, essentially. Um, they wanted to muzzle him. Now, it might be it was for his protection because they knew that, that the opposition to him was growing. So they might have had good motives, um, but it might have been out of embarrassment. Oy vey, my son is committing blasphemy. I got to stop him. Uh, and we don't know what, what reason they had, but that we do know that they wanted to seize him and get him out of there and get him home and fix him. Uh, it abruptly cuts in verse 22 to the Pharisees. Now, they admit that Jesus can cast out demons but they claim that he is doing so by the power of Satan. And Jesus' response shows the absurdity of that statement. Why would Satan do harm to Satan? His kingdom could not stand long if he did. And of course, the demons have recognized this, that Jesus has come to destroy them. And Satan's kingdom is, in fact, doomed with the coming of Messiah. Not to mention the fact that Satan is not really known for acts of mercy. Uh, let me heal someone, because I like to do that. That's, he doesn't say that kind of thing. And then Jesus gives this, this um, strong man allegory. The strong man is Satan. Nobody can enter a strong man's house until he first binds that man. The stronger one, the one entering the house, is Jesus. And Jesus is telling us that he has come to bind Satan and to redeem those he has plundered. Uh, now, I was going to mention here uh, that this is an allusion to Isaiah 49, but I have bigger fish to fry, so I won't mention that now. And at the end, Jesus talks about this sin of blasphemy, against the Holy Spirit. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, in a nutshell, is persistent 
willful rebellion against God and his son. It is an ongoing rebellion. It is saying that Jesus is evil, not good. And it is unforgivable as long as one persists in it because that person has cut himself off from his only source of forgiveness and salvation. As long as you are saying he is not Messiah and rebelling against him, you cannot follow him. You cannot be forgiven because there is no forgiveness apart from Christ. But notice the first thing Jesus says in verse 28. All sins are forgivable. And even if one who is committing blasphemy against the Holy Spirit turns to follow Jesus, he will be forgiven. I was, and I rebelled against God for years before I followed him. Uh, so, y'all are here. Y'all are interested in Jesus. I just want to tell you, don't worry anymore. You have not committed, or you have been forgiven from rebellion against God. You've not committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Um, that's, the, that's kind of the bottom line. So then it goes back to Jesus and his family. Uh, and in this ver these verses, Jesus redefines family. Bi biological family is not unimportant, but Jesus is announcing a new eternal family where we, we are brothers and sisters forever in Christ. We are bound to and by him. God is our father. We are his children. Indeed, God does not have grandchildren. This is a tremendous comfort to those who have been forsaken by their family, particularly for those who have been forsaken because of their faith in Christ. And many of the original readers of Mark would have been in that category. Well, let's apply all this and talk about loving as Jesus loved, because Jesus came to call sinners, and that's all of us. We are all dirty, rotten sinners deserving hell. Apart from Jesus, we are without hope. The problem comes when we begin to think we're all fixed now, and we begin to look down on the other unfixed people. Jesus embraced those in need of God's love, and we are to embrace them too. My niece Sarah, 22 years old, understands this. And she became involved a year and a half ago in a ministry called Bruised Reed. And every single week on Wednesday night, Sarah and a friend take a meal, a hot home-cooked meal, to a strip club, the same strip, strip club every week, and serve the ladies there. That's loving as Jesus loved. And it's dining with them as Jesus did. The purpose, Sarah told me, is to meet these women where they are, they're at, in their territory, where they are comfortable, when the next six hours of their night will be spent on stage being reduced to a slab of meat. We are here to ask about their weeks, their children, their husbands, their classes, their hometown. We're, he not, we're here to get to know these women and their stories and to be a loving, non-judgmental presence in their lives. Some weeks, that's not easy to do. But one thing I've learned is that we have to just keep showing up. I think one of the things I've learned from this ministry is that it's not about us serving or converting them, but it's about us sitting alongside them. I am in awe of so many of the thing, these women's and their, women and their stories, women who have lived and endured things I could never imagine. 
OAA, and that's what she calls me. I wish that every person in this world could sit down and hear some of the stories I've heard from these women, because I swear they have taught me more than I could have ever taught them. So um, I want to end with this video, and we're going it, it's, to, it's seven minutes long, and I'm going to play the whole thing, because it's powerful, by Tony Campolo, because this is why Jesus came, and this is what we're supposed to be doing. Not this specific thing, but loving like this. Been there, know that you wake up like at three o'clock in the morning and you can't get back to sleep. He's in Honolulu. And I'm, I'm hungry. And I, I went looking for something to eat. And even at that wee hour of the morning, in a bustling city like Honolulu, you can't find a place that's open. But up a side street, I did find a place. I went in, sat down on the stool. There was a greasy spoon, no booze, just a row of stools in front of the counter. And, and this fat guy with a dirty, filthy, greasy apron came out, pulled his cigar out, put it down, and said, what do you want? I didn't touch the menu. It was one of those plastic menus that grease had piled up on it. And I knew that if I opened it, something extraterrestrial would crawl out. <laughs> and so I'd like a cup of coffee and a donut. So he poured the coffee, and then he did this. And he picked up the donut. <laughs> I hate that. <laughs> so I'm sitting there, 3.30 in the morning, drinking my coffee and eating this dirty donut. Into the room come about eight or nine prostitutes, and they sat down on either side of me. And I tried to disappear. <laughs> and the one on my immediate right said, tomorrow's my birthday, she said to her friend. I'm going to be 39. Her friend said, so what do you want me to do? Sing happy birthday? You want a cake? What, do you, what should we do? Have a party for you? You're going to be 39. First woman said, look, I don't, I'm not expecting anything. I just, why do you have to put me down? And then she said, with a crack in her voice. I've never had a birthday party in my whole life. I don't expect to have one now. That did it. I waited till, you know, till they all left, and I was the only one left. I called Harry over. I said, do they come in here every night? He said, yeah. I said, the one next to me? He said, Agnes. I said, tomorrow's her birthday. What do you say we decorate the place? And when she comes in tomorrow, we have a birthday party for her because I heard her say she's never had a birthday party in her whole life. He said, mister, that's brilliant. That is brilliant. Jane, he called his wife out of the back room. She did the cooking. He wants to throw a birthday party for Agnes. I thought, jeez, this is great. She comes out. She grabs my hand. She says, mister, you wouldn't understand this because of what she does, you know. But she's one of the kind people in this town. She's one of the caring people in this town. I said, uh, look, can I, can I decorate the place? She said, to your heart's content. I said, I'm going to bring a birthday cake. Harry said, oh, no, the cake's my thing. I thought, oh, geez, you know, God. <laughs> so I got there the next morning. I got there the next morning at about 2.30. I had bought crepe paper at the Kmart, strung it across the plate, place, made a big sign that said, happy birthday, Agnes, put it on the mirror behind the counter. I had the place spruced. Jane, who got, does the cooking, got the word out on the street so that by 
every prostitute in Honolulu was squeezed into this place. I mean, people, it was wall-to-wall -wall prostitutes and me. 3.30 in the morning, the door opens. In comes Agnes and her friends. I got everybody poised, everybody ready. The minute she walked through the door, we yell, Happy birthday, Agnes! And all start cheering like mad. I've never seen anybody so stunned in my life. Her knees buckled. They steadied her and got her and sat her down on a chair. And We started singing, Happy birthday, Happy birthday, Happy birthday, dear Agnes. And when they brought out the cake, she lost it and started to cry. Harry just stood there with the cake, and finally he said, All right, Agnes, knock it off. Blow out the candles, Agnes. Come on, blow out the candles. She tried, and she couldn't, so he blew out the candles and handed her the knife and said, Now cut the cake. Come on now, cut the cake. She sat there for a long moment, and then she said to me, Is it all right if I don't cut the cake? She said, What I'd really like to do is take the cake home and show it to my mother. I said, it's your cake. She stood up. I said, do you have to do it now? She said, I live two doors down. Let me take the cake home. I'll bring it right back. I promise. She picked up the cake. She pushed through the crowd and out the door. And as the door swung slowly shut, dead silence, the whole group was stunned. I didn't know what to say. Finally, after a few uneasy moments, I said, what do you say we pray? It's weird looking back on it now. <laughs> a sociologist leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning in a diner in Honolulu was the right thing to do, and I prayed that God would deliver her from what dirty, filthy men had done to her, usually starting like it, you know, when they're about 12 or 13, and, and then they're ruined and hurt. And when I finished praying that God would make her new, that God would give her back everything that had been taken from her, I said amen and lifted my eyes, and Harry was right in my face. He said, hey, Camp Paulo, you told me you were a sociologist. You're no sociologist. You're a preacher. What kind of church you belong to? And one of those moments when you come up with just the right words, I said, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning. <laughs> I thought that was a clever answer. I'll never forget his response. He looked back and he said, no, you don't. No, you don't. He said, I would join a church like that. <laughs> Wouldn't we all? Wouldn't we all join a church that threw birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning? I got news for you. That is the kind of church that Jesus came to create. He came to create a church that was filled with people that move out into the world and bring celebration and joy into the lives of those who have nothing to celebrate and have no joy, to bring celebration to those who are brokenhearted and beaten down, to lift them up and give them some joy in their life. That's what you are called to do. You are called to be agents of God, to spread His love and His joy into a loveless and joyless world. That's what you're called to do. And if you surrender to Christ and let Him cleanse you and let the Spirit fill within you, His Spirit 
will constrain you, says Scripture, constrain you, drive you to do loving and joyful things in a world devoid of joy and love. Do you hear me? 